This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm Will Oremus. And I'm April Glazer. Hello and welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We're recording this on the afternoon of Monday, January 30th. On today's show, we'll talk about a clever effort to restore net neutrality in Montana and New York. We'll discuss Facebook's latest newsfeed tweaks. Yes, again, this time it's trying to resuscitate the local news economy by putting more stories from local sources in your feed. And later we'll be joined by Depayan Ghosh, a former privacy and policy advisor to Facebook, the Obama administration, and Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign. We'll talk about his recent report on how digital advertising technologies, like the ones you find on Facebook and Google, lend themselves to disinformation campaigns and what the government can do about it. And lastly, don't close my tabs. Our picks for best on the web this week. April, how are you doing this week? I see that you are in our Slate studios in D.C. I am. I'm in Slate HQ. I went to the other side of the country this week. Uh, You're still in California. I am. It's beautiful here. But let's talk about a development coming out of Montana and New York. Uh, What's new in the net neutrality world? Yes. Well, last week, the governors of both states, uh, Montana first and then New York, introduced executive orders that require all Internet providers provides that provide services to the state government. So like that have contracts with the schools or the post office um, or the police department adhere to the principles of network neutrality. Right. And so that means that for those government services, um, you know, the Internet providers that are, are on contract with the state cannot block websites. They can't slow down or speed up or throttle content. Um, they can't, you know, uh, charge websites to reach users faster, nor the, can they charge users to only reach certain parts of the Internet. They have to basically do what uh, Ajit Pai of the FCC ruled and 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 passed a law saying that Internet providers um, are allowed to not do now. So effectively, it's they they they're trying to protect net neutrality within their states um, by deciding how they're going to spend their money. It's so fascinating to see the creative ways that local and state governments are trying to undo what's being done at the federal level. So basically, they're saying, look, the federal law now says that you can discriminate against certain types of traffic on your network, but mm-hmm. if you do that you're not going to be doing any more business with the state of Montana or the state of New York. Exactly. And if you want those big contracts, then um, then you have to adhere to network neutrality policy, you know, for the state. And and uh, 
And, you know, I, I was speaking to some experts about it. And, you know, it turns out that, that they think this is actually a pretty smart move because although the FCC in its net neutrality rules wrote that, you know, they st- – that states cannot create their own net neutrality rules to kind of circumvent um, the FCC's anti-net neutrality rules. Um, it would be quite a stretch for the FCC to tell how states can and can't spend their money when it comes to their own, you know, interstate contra- or interstate contracts. That's such an interesting lever to pull. It reminds me of how the local government here, down here in Southern California and LA, they were trying to pass a measure that said, if you help build Trump's wall, then you can't do business. You're not going to get any more contracts from the city of LA. Yeah. You know, uh, a lot of uh, this is going to be fought out in the courts. You know, we have, we see a lot of public interest groups and and attorney generals preparing to challenge the FCC's rules once they, uh, once they go into effect in the courts. But, uh, you know, we're also starting to see these kinds of local and, and state governments flex uh, flex their muscle, and it'll be interesting to see how this all plays out. Beyond the FCC, there's also always Facebook, right? And and there was some uh, news that 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 came out uh, on Monday about Facebook. Uh, Will can can you tell us kind of how Facebook is now once again changing their news feed um, in response to kind of the 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 crisis that they've been dealing with since the 2016 election? Yeah, every week now seems to bring a different tweak to Facebook's news feed as the company tries to reckon with the ways it has disrupted the media and democracy. The latest, which was announced on Monday, is that Facebook will be trying to boost local news in your feed. So they're going to try to identify stories that originate from outlets with a local audience, give those a little bump up in the rankings. So that when your friend shares a story about, say, what the local city government is doing, that's going to appear higher in your feed than the latest dispute about a Trump tweet or about, you know, celebrities or the Grammys or whatever else. So, you know, this is uh, good, I think, in sentiment. I think local news is incredibly important. Uh, I think it's a little late, though, because we don't have strong local news everywhere anymore. Um, certainly some cities have it better than others, but the gutting of, of local newsrooms has has just been disastrous for the news ecosystem. And I think there's really a question of what is Facebook going to be promoting to the top of these feeds? What, what you know, is, is it going to be like Action News 5, <laughs> the ABC affiliate? I'm just making this up or the Fox affiliate uh, that, that has car crashes and, and lost kittens. Or is it going to be like kind of hard hitting coverage of, of you know, local assembly and state legislature, uh, of which there is really a, a, a real loss for across the country? Yeah, that's an interesting point. I mean, when Facebook came out with this, my immediate reaction was like, oh, good. Thank goodness. They're finally going to try to boost local news. Yes, it's too late. This should have been done years ago. Local news in particular has just been their business model has just been destroyed by the Internet and by Facebook. What I wondered immediately was, all right, what's going to be the criticism of this? Because Facebook can't do anything without attracting criticism. And there actually is a valid point that you raise, which is that now that local news has been so diminished, 
is it even worth promoting in your Facebook feed anymore? I mean, if they could somehow distinguish between what's left of that kind of like hard hitting original reporting that we have in mind when we think of the virtues of local news, that would be amazing. But I don't know that they're actually going to be able to do that. I mean, maybe you're just going to see your local newspaper's aggregated take on the same national news that everybody else is covering. I mean, we certainly see... um you know, the ownership limits rising. They have someone thing the FCC has been moving to do uh, is is kind of uh, raise the ownership limits uh, when it comes to, you know, how many radio stations, television stations and newspapers a single company can own in a market. And, you know, without these robust media consolidation laws, we don't necessarily have a local reporting ecosystem. Another thing I want to point out in, in Mark Zuckerberg's uh, public Facebook post about this, he told he t- he talks about his 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 goals. Um, Last year, when he traveled the country to learn more about America, he says, many people told me they thought if we could turn down the temperature on more divisive issues and instead focus on concrete local issues, then we'd all make more progress together. Well, I will definitely say as a resident of the Bay Area that local issues are extremely divisive. And so if the goal is to to get us to all just get along, then I don't think, for instance, talking about uh, the housing crisis in the Bay Area is going to be the path to do that. Yeah, I think like a lot of the things Facebook's doing recently, this is it seems like the right move in principle. I think the execution will matter a lot and it could could potentially go horribly awry if it's not managed carefully. Uh, Yeah, but, you know, again, just on the positive note, Local news outlets could probably use the boost, and they're probably celebrating this right now. And I am certainly a proponent of local news. Maybe Facebook should should buy ads from them. <laughs> There's an idea that would actually help them. But yeah, no, yeah. I think they could use it. And I, and I think, you know, again, they've been decimated, mm-hmm. but maybe this is what's needed to spur some new investment in local news. I mean, every time Facebook makes a change to the feed, a little cottage economy springs up immediately to try to game it and take advantage of it. I kind of am looking forward to seeing what are the, v, you know, what are the VC-backed startups that are going to try to take advantage of serving people local news. Is there any chance that they'll do that? in a way that actually uh, leads to original reporting. Probably not, I guess, because that doesn't scale and VCs are all about scale. And as much as it saddens me to see the investment um, kind of chasing, you know, Facebook's tweaks in its algorithm, when really the investment should probably be chasing, you know, what's a very good thing that communities need to consume more of, (laughs) which is local news, um, it could spark some, some more investment in the space, that's for sure. But now it's time for a short break. When we come back, we'll have our interview with privacy and policy advisor Depayan Ghosh. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Our guest today is Dupayan Ghosh. 
DePayan is a fellow at New America. He's a former public policy and privacy advisor for Facebook, and before that, a tech policy advisor to the Obama administration. Last week, he and Ben Scott published a report called Digital Deceit, the technologies behind precision propaganda on the internet. Both DePayan and Scott helped work on Hillary Clinton's tech policy platform for her presidential campaign. They were also featured in a recent New York Times story about Democrats once cozy with Silicon Valley, now criticizing it. Welcome to If Then, DePayan. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. Your report is a fascinating and comprehensive look at the ways in which these big tech platforms, Facebook, Google, Twitter, lend themselves to disinformation campaigns. And you say that the disinformation we saw from Russian agents during the 2016 election cycle was just sort of the head of the spear. I mean, there's there's a lot more behind that. Tell me, what are your big concerns besides Russians hacking elections? And how do the structure of our social media platforms play into the hands of people who are trying to mislead us in one way or another? Sure. Well, you know, I think that one thing that that Ben and I are trying to highlight in this report is that the public and the Congress as part of the public is really thinking a little too narrowly on this on this topic. Um, they are very focused on three companies, which are admittedly at the center of the digital advertising ecosystem, and one foreign actor, Russia. But Ben and I think that this is a broader problem. It stretches across the digital advertising ecosystem uh, into technologies like behavioral data tracking, uh, search engine optimization. Underlying all these technologies, we think that artificial intelligence is really coming to the fore and being integrated across the board. And all of this is, is, is really important to understand to the public and, and for Congress as we really try to think aggressively about how to limit and, and minimize the impact of disinformation operations um, in, the, in the United States. Something that's really interesting to me is that, you know, you were in government and then jumped to industry and then, you know, served government. Now you're doing kind of public interest work. You know, at, during your time with um, – at Facebook, did you were, – were, was there a big concern that, that these tools could be manipulated uh, or be be used in their proper way, like actually to, um, to, to manipulate users? Was that, a, was that an overarching theme of concern there? For me personally, you know, I, I certainly felt that. I, I think – I think in um, oh, May- so they were concerned about that these tools could be misused. No, no, I'm saying I, I personally concerned. felt okay. concerned. <laughs> okay, and you know, without without um, speaking too much about internal deliberations or or my mm-hmm. my colleagues' feelings, mm-hmm. private feelings, uh, I think I I wouldn't say that I was alone in thinking that hey, Gizmodo does really have a point here mm-hmm. um, when they reported that. Uh, the trending topics feature, which appears in the upper right section of your browser mm-hmm. when you're looking at the Facebook home screen, um, m- maybe maybe there is there are questions that that need to be asked about, um, you know, who who curates this information? Mm-hmm. And is there potentially some kind of a um, implicit and unintentional bias? Facebook then was thinking about how. You know, how do humans and computers interact to police content on mm-hmm. the network? Um, of course, after that emerged these, this whole controversy over fake news, which was the exact opposite right. side of the debate, which is, you know, in the trending topics case, uh, 
the public was asking, especially conservatives were asking, how can you have humans who are, you know, we're claiming are, are liberals and have a liberal bent. How can you have them suppressing conservative content mm-hmm. on your platform? And then on the other side, a few months later, people were asking questions about how, um, you know, maybe computers shouldn't be policing content over the network because uh, because that is what is leading to these, you know, mm-hmm. falsities and, and fake news uh, pervading mm-hmm. um, because it's not a human that's looking at it and, and checking its voraciousness, veracity, sorry. Yeah. I was, you know, I was at the Javits Center on election night, um, you know, watching state after state after state being lost mm-hmm. and yet watching her climb in the in the popular vote um, was definitely a striking uh, striking statistic and and suggested that well look maybe there is some some targeting going on here that uh, that is implicit and, and we're just not seeing it and and maybe there's something else going on here you know, one thing that I noticed before coming into journalism, I, I worked in uh, tech policy advocacy as well, at, like the Electronic Frontier Foundation mm-hmm. and other places. Um, Facebook has stealthily avoided regulation on a variety of fronts for a long time, as has the, the, the tech industry in general. You know, they've ballooned to being among the most powerful companies in the world, just don't have a lot of oversight, everything from the FEC to uh, the the Federal Election Commission rather uh, and avoiding you know uh, disclosure on political ads which now they're 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 doing voluntarily more um, even though th- there's there's uh, more requirements coming in on that uh, to you know the Federal Trade Commission uh, you know just doing these very light slaps on the wrist around facial recognition um, to just you know ads in general if I was to pick an industry where self regulation failed I would probably say the digital advertising industry <laughs> is the case is case in point. Um, but yet, over and over again, I remember hearing them argue for self-regulation. And so uh, I'm curious if, if you just – if you have thoughts on on that. It seems like they worked really hard to uh, to avoid uh, any sort of, uh, you know, rules that they didn't create themselves. And um, and then they, they, they failed in policing them, themselves. Well, I mean, I think at a, at a very high level, um, we have a regulatory framework in the United States that's, that has been over the decades uh, designed mm-hmm. for the traditional media. Yes. Um, for, for you, you know what I'm talking about when I say the traditional media. Um, it has been designed for, for, for cable and for radio mm-hmm. and, uh, for broadcast bro- and tradi- print, yeah. For, for, and for tra- Those are the consolidation laws and things Absolutely. like that. Absolutely, yeah. And and for the traditional telecommunications industry as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and as we all know, those industries are being subsumed almost by the internet. The, well, the internet Facebook is, definitely has a larger market cap than the broadcasters now. <laughs> that's, that's for sure. Yeah. And and you know the internet is is eclipsing them in. Um, Collectively ex- eclipsing them in 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 revenue and power and so on and so forth, mm-hmm. and yet this regulatory regime is essentially the same. So you're saying like we don't have the regulatory scaffolding right now, just in terms of like the civics of the U.S. to properly address these platforms. 
I I don't think so. Um, okay. Like the FCC I, is not the body to do it, and the FTC is not the body to do it, and Congress doesn't do anything. So, well, well, not anything, but you know. What I mean. <laughs> well, I mean, as, you know, as we know, you we we so in the Obama administration, we um, mm-hmm. we pushed privacy legislation. Mm-hmm. Europe has for a long time had baseline privacy legis- uh, baseline privacy law. Uh, it is a fundamental An human right. Law. Yeah. And it, yes. Um, but I just want to dive deeper on privacy for just 30 sure, seconds. Sure. You know, in, in Europe, um, they've had it. They've had it for more than 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, in the U.S., we just completely lack it. We have these sectoral laws in health uh, health privacy and children's privacy yes. uh, and, and a few others, educational privacy. Um, but we, we but we certainly lack a baseline privacy law. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I think the Obama White House was uh, – it, it did everything in its power to push privacy legislation forward, and it just didn't work because, essentially, because of political gridlock. Do you think it did everything in its power to push privacy legislation forward? I might might disagree with that a, a, a lot, but but I do, <laughs> but I do think that there were a lot of people pushing, definitely at least for for government surveillance reform. I think during the time of the Obama administration, much of the conversation around digital privacy was about government reform and not about corporate reform. It was about protecting our our first and our fourth amendment rights. It wasn't about um, corporate surveillance and data collection as much. At least that was the theme post Snowden. Absolutely. And I, I think there is good reason for that, given sure. the things that Snowden revealed mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. There was a lot of public attention on that. But I think people forget that and miss that there that the Obama administration did introduce a discussion draft legislative proposal mm. that, you know, if passed, would provide a baseline privacy law. Kind of a United digital States. privacy framework. What does that mean? What would it have done specifically? Well, th- I'm speaking specifically yeah. of the Consumer Privacy Bill of Rights Act right. of, of 2015. Uh, which, which did was, not pass. For reasons we all know, we, we released it on a Friday afternoon. It, it was it was dead on arrival in Congress. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, in, in fact, there weren't even really robust discussions about it. There were some opinions on it um, from from advocates and from industry, but um, but for it was it was essentially attacked by everybody. So, I, so what I would say is that I, I, I do think the administration tried. Um, this is a big issue. That, I'm not just saying that that was that mm-hmm. was the perfect form of regulation, or that 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 was that law. Or sorry, that bill should have been passed as written. Mm-hmm. But it was meant to start a conversation, which just didn't really mm-hmm. move forward. A big thrust of the report that you wrote is that the fundamental structure of these platforms, especially Facebook, but probably to some extent Google and Twitter and others, is such that they lend themselves to persuasion. I mean, their their business models are about selling to advertisers the idea that you can reach just the right people who are going to be susceptible to your message at just the right time. It'll be delivered to them in the context of messages from their friends and family. It's this atmosphere of trust and Anybody can reach into that news feed. You know, you call it precision propaganda. One of my favorite lines from your report is that, quote, disinformation campaigns and legitimate advertising campaigns are effectively indistinguishable on leading Internet platforms. Can you talk just a little bit more about why that is and what is the fix for a problem like that? Because it seems endemic. It doesn't seem like a problem that you can fix with just, you know, one little law or, uh, you know, 
regulatory interventions on the margins, or the sort of light touch that we're always hearing about in Washington when it comes to tech companies. One exploratory direction that um, the industry could consider, whether individually on on a company by company basis or or as a as a industry wide effort, is to start thinking about artificial intelligence and 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 using that in a way to detect disinformation operations because there are certain signals that are very you know oh, of, yeah. often very clear like the or, the geographic origin of the uh, advertiser and the uh, target audience and the timing of the um, ad placement and the content of the ad that you know altogether if you are able to analyze those things on the fly perhaps you can determine with you know 95% confidence that hey this this guy is probably uh, a disinformation agent um, this message that they're trying to convey is is probably meant to try to mislead voters uh, during high political season yeah. or over time in this politically sensitive district or, or region. Let me ask a question, actually, instead of about the ideal policy fixes that you would like to see, what about the realistic politics of the moment? We're, we're seeing a time where there is, I think, Maybe a, a, an emerging consensus uh, in the public and somewhat even on Capitol Hill that tech companies have become too big, too powerful to treat anymore like these nimble startups that we can't regulate because they're they're always innovating and will somehow crush their innovation if we regulate them. Where are we right now in, the, in this political moment in terms of um, you know realistically uh, passing regulations that affect the tech companies? And sorry for the long and rambling question, but I want to ask this in the context of the fact that these companies are right now desperately scrambling to prove that they can self-regulate. You know, Facebook has rolled out fix after fix after fix this year. It's all about introspection. All of a sudden, it's so, you know, worried and concerned about its role in the world. Uh, and, I, you know, I think... Some of that has to be earnest, but some of that also has to be that they see the writing on the wall. They, they see these hearings in Washington and the talk of how they're too big and need to be cut down to size. So given their power and given what they're already doing voluntarily, how realistic do you think it is that we could see meaningful regulation coming from Washington in a bipartisan way in the next couple of years? Well, I, you know, I think that it's possible, but I think that the question is going to be what, should that, what form should that regulation take? Um, now, I think the Honest Ads Act is positive. Um, I think that um, it's it's always good to have transparency. Uh, but it's not, you know, transparency only tells you what's happening when you're an interested party. Um, it, it is not going to fundamentally stop the uh, effects of disinformation operations, uh, especially if they're done in a highly targeted and sophisticated manner, um, which some have argued the Russians did not even actually have to do because these platforms were are, are, mm -hmm. are so uh, exact in their in their um, they use them placement. exactly how they're designed exactly yeah exactly I think that what Senator Warner is doing is amazing launching an inquiry into this matter and even putting himself behind legislation do I think that that's the those are the right words on the paper um, I, I think it's the right direction. Um, but I but I think that more needs to be done uh, beyond just transparency. And what I'd also say that I, is that I I do hope that that more uh, more folks in the Senate, in particular, can can take this up um, in the near term and 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 start asking questions because and and also start 
start understanding on both sides. What what do consumer advocates think? What do election officials and people watching elections think? And and what do political candidates think? And what are the what are the technological and economic constraints in Silicon Valley as well? Um, and you know, I think that we can start building a a um, a more fundamental and uh, maybe uh, bipartisan movement to uh, to start thinking about what's next for Silicon Valley and and how do we how do we limit this uh, this problem of disinformation. Um, it's uh, it's it's super interesting, and, and this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank thank you both for having me. All right, one more quick break, and then don't close my tabs. Some of our favorite things we've seen online this week. for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. It's time again for Don't Close My Tabs. April, what tab could you not close this week? For me, it was a story in the New York Times called The Follower Factory, and it was about fake social media followers and how all kinds of rich and famous and wannabe rich and famous people buy them for a lot of them, actually, for a lot of money and kind of the black market of uh, faking people's identities to make it look like you're more popular than you are. It was a super interesting article. Did you have a chance to catch it, Will? Yeah, I did. And one of the cool things about it was that the New York Times really put their their full heft of their ability to promote a story behind this. It's rare to see from them for a tech story. They did this kind of format where you scroll down through the page and different subtitles pop up as the graphics are doing weird things in the background. It was just a fun presentation. But what was really interesting to me about it was it revealed all of these people, I mean, household names who have been buying fake Mm -hmm. followers, buying bots to to make themselves seem more popular online than they really are. Who were a couple of the names that jumped out at you? All kinds of people were doing this. We're talking, you know, Kathy Ireland, the the former swimsuit model. Uh, we're talking about, you know, Michael Dell, the uh, the computer billionaire, right? Uh, we're talking about athletes and uh, politicians, Uh Basically, anybody that would benefit from looking like they're really, really popular online. Um, and and one of the things that was interesting is that the the main one of the main focuses of the article was a company called Devumi, which uh, has kind of been selling these accounts. Uh, according to the New York Times, they found some fifty five thousand accounts that use names, profile pictures, and other kind of details of actual real Twitter users, right? And this included minors. So you know there were a bunch of fake users. It seemed that were that were populating these uh, 
these accounts to make it look like they were more popular than they are. But but tons of real people as well had their identities lifted and, and, and used as uh, kind of fake social media props. Yeah. And they told it partly through the perspective of one random young woman from Minnesota who had had her identity stolen by some of these bots that are that are bought to make people look more popular. They'll change like they'll do a lowercase L instead of an uppercase I in the name so that it's not technically the same name, but it's indistinguishable from the name. I mean, to me, what this shows is just how much of the stuff we see online is being bought and paid for. I mean, this, you know, we, there's this idea that, that what people are talking about on Twitter is somehow authentic and that if there's a big Twitter firestorm over something, that means people are really upset about it. Mm-hmm. I think this just goes to show that half the time it's not because of that. It's because someone has paid a bunch of money to look like there's a big firestorm over that topic. Will, what, uh, what tab could you not close this week? All right. Mine is a story that originated on Twitter when a conflict analyst noticed something interesting about a data visualization that was actually released late last year. This visualization was from a company called Strava. It's the social network for fitness buffs. So this is the social media platform where you can, you know, when you track your activity on your Fitbit fitness tracker, it will upload it to your profile on this network. And you can keep in touch with people about what routes you're running and how many miles you did today and what heart rate you achieved and that sort of thing. So they published this visualization last year that they described as very beautiful and the most comprehensive of its kind. And it showed a global map of all the different places where people were using this social network. Now, what happened this past week was that a conflict analyst was looking at this map, taking a closer look and saying, hmm, it's interesting to note that there are some tracks, some jogging tracks in locations where the U.S. is known to have secret or, you know, unacknowledged forward military operating bases. Started looking a little more closely and tweeting some of these zoomed in pictures. You can see things like there is a Apparently a popular jogging track that goes around a an officially abandoned part of the Mogadishu airport in Somalia. This has been talked about, I guess, in the security community as a, uh, a, a CIA annex to the Mogadishu airport, but it has not been publicly acknowledged. And you can see where apparently the U.S. military personnel with their Fitbits have just been jogging a loop uh, around the CIA site. It, this, there were other sites like this around the world in Helmand province in Afghanistan, um, mm. sites all over Syria. And the concern obviously being that we have probably been, you know, Strava probably gave away the location of secret military bases to, uh, to foreign powers. Uh, and, and of course the U S military personnel were accidentally complicit in this by sending all that information up to the, the social network Strava. I think this is going to raise a lot of questions about what vendors the military, you know, works with and kind of harder line rules about, you know, the military working with Silicon Valley tech companies, um, which they've been trying to do more of. And uh, this will probably certainly, you know, press pause on that a little bit more or, or invite more scrutiny into those relationships without a doubt, because, you know, if this is something that the military had built themselves, they probably would have uh, had, you know, th- thought about the the privacy and the security of their bases first, as opposed to inviting an outside vendor in. Yeah, and it's interesting. I had actually read that there was an active effort by the Department of Defense to encourage people to use these fitness tracking devices in an effort to fight obesity in the military. 
I guess they didn't have this in mind when they did that. But it's just, you know, it's just another case of the disconnect between, you know, you're a Silicon Valley company, you're collecting all this data. And to you, it's awesome. It's really cool. You can do beautiful visualizations with it. You can do all kinds of, you know, you can find all kinds of neat ways to use that data. But for the people who are giving up that data, they don't always think about what could happen if it fell into the wrong hands or was somehow publicized in the wrong venue. Super interesting story this week. Thanks so much for sharing, Will. Um, Something I'm definitely going to continue to think about. Um, But that is our show for this week. You can get updates about what's coming up next by following us on Twitter at IfThenPod. You can also email us at IfThen at Slate.com. You can follow me in April on Twitter as well. Join our legions of fake followers on there. I'm at Will Remus. April is at April Laser. Thanks again to our guest, Depayan Ghosh, for joining us. You can find him on Twitter at GhoshD7. That's G-H-O-S-H-D-7. And if you like this show, help us spread the word. We'd really appreciate it if you left us a comment and a review on iTunes or wherever you listen. Thanks. If Then is a production of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. Our producer is Max Jacobs. Thanks to Don Aulis at A Room with a VU Studio in Santa Barbara. We will see you next week.